Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14 today. Um, we went through uh, up through verse 12 last week, but we're going to read verse 12 and revisit that briefly. So let's read 12, 13, and 14. Paul writes that we ought to be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lord, what an amazing passage we have before us this morning. What an amazing promise and proclamation and finished work. The Father, you have qualified us, delivered us and transferred us. That Jesus, your work upon the cross has redeemed us and because of it we are forgiven. And Lord, I would ask this morning that for us, this congregation, you would teach us to walk in these things. You would teach us to walk in that forgiveness and that redemption, to walk in the truths of your kingdom, to walk in freedom from darkness, to walk in an attitude of gratitude to you, Father, for all that you have done for us. God, it's all about you and your mercy and your grace and what you have accomplished in your power. But Lord, work those things that you have done deep in our hearts today. And I ask now, Father that you would anoint my lips and author my thoughts, and that we would be built up as a church by the teaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we looked at Paul's intercessory prayer, verses 9 through 12. That is what he was praying for the church in Colossae, the content of his prayer. We saw there that the content of Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae is also God's heart for us that those things are what God wants to be abounding and working in our lives, and they're also wonderful things for us to be praying for others. We spoke about that. And he says at the end of verse 11 that he wanted the church in Colossae to know, and on into verse 12, that they should be joyously giving thanks to the Father. It's strange how often you need to tell Christians to be thankful. It comes up repeatedly in the book of Colossians. We spoke about it a few times already. But it is strange how often you need to remind Christians to be thankful. And yet it's very biblical. Peter said in his epistle, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. And Paul said in one of his epistles, I have no problem in telling you these things again. And I have no problem standing in front of you again this morning saying to you, Christian, be thankful. Christian, be joyously giving thanks to the Father. One of the Colossian heresies that this book is written in response to was that God was a holy God and had no contact with this earth. And that there were a series of emanations that came from God, Jesus Christ being only one of them that contacted this earth, but God himself would never come in contact with the people of this world. Paul combats that by saying we can give thanks directly to God the Father. And so we ought to do so daily. And the reason that is given here in verse 12 is because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has qualified us. We were not qualified, nor could we ever be qualified in and of ourselves. And the idea of that phrase to qualify means to make sufficient, to empower to authorize, and to make fit. 
And apart from being in Jesus Christ and saved by Jesus Christ, there is just no way that we are sufficient for eternity. There's no way that we are authorized to receive the promises of eternity. We have no power to come in contact with God and we just don't fit in the kingdom of God. But God the Father in His mercy, He qualifies us, we having been unqualified in and of ourselves. And so when we get saved, when we come before God and go, okay, God, no question about it anymore, I'm a sinner. And Jesus, you are the only unique Savior. I confess my sins before you. I repent of them. I ask you to save me according to what you did upon the cross. Come into my life. Be my Lord and my King. When we do that, when we enter into salvation, the Bible teaches that we become identified with Christ or that we are placed into Christ or that God views us through the lens of Jesus Christ. In Bible terms, terms, His blood covers us. We become the righteousness of God in Him. And so through salvation, and at the moment of salvation, we become sufficient for all the promises of God because we're in Christ Jesus, because He is sufficient for all things. We become authorized to enter the kingdom of God. And in Christ Jesus, when we are saved, we finally realize we fit. What a wonderful feeling. So much of the experience apart from God in this world is, man, I just don't fit. I don't fit in with that clique or with that group and I don't quite cut it here and I just kind of feel like a fish out of water and I'm not sure who I am. But the moment we come to Jesus Christ and we're placed in Christ through salvation, all of a sudden we discover that we fit. And we fit with the most glorious thing, not some silly clique, not some club, not some group, not some church. We fit with the plan and the purpose and the kingdom and the glory and the promises of God. And there's nothing more amazing than that in all the earth. And so God qualified us for these things, and so we ought to be giving thanks. And having been qualified, we now have the promise of an inheritance, it says in verse 12. We will share in the inheritance of the saints of light. We have an inheritance. An inheritance is a cool thing, you know what I mean? You get something for nothing is basically what it is. You get something because of relationship and for no other reason. And because of our relationship to Jesus Christ, we get an inheritance. Now, our inheritance basically consists of three things. Number one, eternal life. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 29, Anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So that which we receive solely by relationship with Jesus Christ, the inheritance, is eternal life. The second thing that our inheritance includes is the earth. Did you know this? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, the meek or the gentle shall inherit the earth. Those are kingdom principles, speaking to people who are in the kingdom of God, Christians. Now it says in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 6, that in the millennial kingdom after the second coming of Jesus Christ, we who are his will rule and reign with him. And so part of the inheritance for the Christian is the earth, the restored and redeemed and renewed earth after Jesus establishes a millennial kingdom. We will rule and reign with him. 
That is an amazing truth that is hard to believe that I would really not believe were it not written in Scripture. But Scripture has proven itself to be the inerrant Word of God, and so I believe it by faith that when Jesus comes into His kingdom at the second coming, we will rule with Him as inheritors of the earth and a restored earth. It's a glorious truth that ought to free you from the concerns and the material wants of this world. If the Christian really lays hold of that, It frees us from struggling for position in this world, struggling for material gain and all these different things that we run after in our flesh. We're free from that, knowing that we will rule with the king. Amen? The third part of our inheritance is simply all the promises of God. Paul urges us in Hebrews 6.12 that we ought to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. All the good promises of God we inherit because of our relationship with Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, logically speaking, we don't, as a church, inherit promises that are made to someone else. In the Bible, there are certain promises that are made for nations such as Egypt. God made promises to them. And Israel. Israel has a unique set of promises that God has made to them. The church does not inherit those because God made those promises to Israel. God also made promises to sinners that they will be judged if they don't repent. We don't inherit that promise. That's not for us. We inherit the promises that are for the church, that are for the saints who are in Christ Jesus. But every promise in Christ Jesus is yes and amen. And we inherit those things, and it is absolutely sure. That is what is clear in the New Testament, is our our inheritance is settled. It's a done deal. In the mind of God, positionally speaking, in the economy of God, we have already been qualified. It took place at the moment of salvation. It's accomplished. It's finished. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 speaks of it and says, We have obtained an inheritance. Past tense. We have obtained. We already have it. We grasp it. We own it. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And then again in Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And so in the economy of God, in the mind of God, in the word of God, our inheritance, our receiving the promises is already a done deal. It's settled forever. Now, when we step into eternity, when we see the Lord face to face, then certain of those promises are realized practically only at that point. Obviously, promises about heaven and eternity are realized practically only at that point. But some of the promises we lay hold of right now, such as eternal life. Eternal life is not only the duration of life, eternal life is the quality of life. Eternal life is where we say, such as Paul said in the book of Galatians, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith unto him. Eternal life is the abundant life that we have in Christ Jesus. And those are things that we can lay hold of right now. And then a multitude, a series, hundreds of promises that you can find in the word of God that are for you now. The peace of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, strength for today, the comfort, the leading and the guiding and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. These are part of our inheritance that we can lay hold of now. And Christian, can I tell you, 
you must lay hold of every promise of God that is for now. They are wonderful, empowering gifts for us. And when the Christian gets in trouble, when the Christian gets dismayed and off track, is when he doesn't lay hold of the things that he has in Christ Jesus. We have tremendous privilege because of this relationship. And to ignore that privilege because of relationship is silly. My parents own a surfboard business in a surf shop. I have certain privileges by relationship. And so there are certain things I get, you understand, at a tremendous discount. For me, not for you. Don't ask me to give you my discount. But what a fool I would be to go pay full price somewhere for a surfboard. I would be an idiot and a moron. Because by relationship to my parents, I have certain privileges. What a fool we are, Christians, when we don't lay hold of all the promises of God found in the Word of God because we have tremendous privilege through relationship. Amen? So settled is our inheritance that the Father has given us an advance on it. The Father has given us a down payment or a pledge on our inheritance, and that is the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is given to the church as a pledge, a promise, a token, a down payment, an advance on every promise of God. Now, it is a basic tenet of Christianity that if you are born again, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And it is as if you have an engagement ring upon your finger. In fact, that Greek word uh, that is used there for pledge or down payment has similarities, John MacArthur says, to the modern Greek word for an engagement ring. The idea being a guarantee. The ring has been placed upon the finger. You are moving toward and looking forward to a day. The Holy Spirit is our down payment, our pledge, our ring, our guarantee, our first installment upon our future inheritance. Now here's what's wonderful about that. That is an objective truth. Objective, meaning it is not subject to how you feel today. Because sometimes we don't feel as though we're betrothed to the Lord, do we? Sometimes we don't feel all the privileges of that relationship. Sometimes we don't feel like living in light of eternity and all the promises. But these are objective truths. And Christian, there is a responsibility for you to deal in truth and not in feeling. There is a responsibility for you to walk in truth rather than your feelings. Now, God created us with feelings and they're not wrong and they're not evil. They can be desirous of wrong things in our fallen nature, but just feelings in general are not a bad thing. And there are certain things we ought to feel. Love. Love is more than a feeling, but we can feel love. We can feel the presence of the Lord at times. And sometimes we just feel so caught up in His presence, it's just amazing. But you see, feelings are subjective to how you feel. 
And so if you feel bad that day and you have a headache that day or you ate something weird that day or some other human bummed you out that day or put you down or insulted you or you have a chemical imbalance and so you're depressed that day or you lost something or you're hurting does not change the reality of your position in Jesus Christ that you are already seated in the heavenly places and that every promise is yes and amen. And it is so sad for Christians to operate on feeling rather than objective truth. It takes a little bit of discipline to operate on truth. You got to say, Lord, I feel this way. I feel horrible. But I believe what your word says, so I'm going to act according to that. That's being obedient to the word. That's abiding in Christ. That's being a doer of the word. And when we do that, it's a tremendous source of comfort and joy and strength in this world. It's not easy to always do it. And so Paul prayed for the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. And we ought to be praying that for one another as a church. Because we do, don't we? We get all caught up in all sorts of carnal, weird things and feelings and silly stuff that we would be praying for one another, that we would know, according to last week, that we would have epinosis, clear, exact knowledge of the hope of God's calling. So, the Father has qualified us for these things. We were not qualified in and of ourselves. In and of ourselves, the only thing that we were qualified to receive from God was His wrath. Understand that? In and of ourselves, the only thing that we are qualified to receive from God is His wrath. And it's so arrogant for man to stand before God and say, God, I deserve thus and so. I have this and that, and you ought to be doing such and so for me. The only thing that we deserve in and of ourselves is the wrath of God. But because of the great mercy of God, we've been placed in Christ Jesus. It's spelled out beautifully in Ephesians 2. Turn there. We'll come right back to Colossians 1, but turn to Ephesians 2, just a couple books back. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7. Speaks of our past condition before we were saved. It says in verse 1, Ephesians 2, 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, not able to connect with God, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. The declaration of the Bible is that before you're saved, you walk according to the power and the plan of Satan. Now, there's not many non-Christians that would admit to that. I wouldn't have before I was a Christian. There's not many that would say, hey man, I'm following the plan and the purpose and the power of Satan. (laughs) There are those and there are those in this community that would confess that. But normally it is a plan of Satan to keep people blinded, unaware, deceived, to think that everything's okay while walking according to his plan of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3. 
Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Look at how contrary the word of God is to the common thought of man. Man likes to say, I am by nature a child of God. The Bible does not teach that because God created you, you are his child. Child speaks of relationship. There is a broken relationship with God because of sin. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. And so by nature, we are children of wrath. When we become saved by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we become children of God. And then it says in verse 4, But God, two of the most wonderful words in the whole Bible, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated, past tense, seated us, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that, why did God save us? In order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God save us so that for eternity he might treat you wonderfully. How kind is our Lord? How good is our God? We were children of wrath by nature. We deserved wrath. We were qualified for wrath. And because of the mercy of the Father, He qualified us to be seated in the heavenlies. If that doesn't turn you on, you don't have a switch. Go back to the book of Colossians now. Colossians chapter 1. Looking at verse 13 now, and what the Father has done for us in His great mercy. It says in verse 13 of Colossians 1, For He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. I want you to see once again that it's in the past tense. It is already accomplished. The Christian has already been delivered from the domain of darkness. All he has to do now is walk in that reality. We have been delivered. It means to be saved from, to be rescued We have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Transferred. Uh, Some translations say translated, but the idea is a change of address. In times of old, if an army came into a nation and conquered that nation, it would transfer the people out of that nation to other locations to just destroy the existence of that nation. And so they would be transferred physically to different kingdoms spread throughout. That's the idea. It is a literal change of address. And when we are saved, we are delivered from and transferred to. Delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Delivered from a kingdom that is about fear and slavery. And transferred to a kingdom that is light and truth and love, and mercy, and kindness, and power, and grace, and goodness. Delivered from, transferred to. Christian, you have had an address change. You literally have changed zip codes, and you are now in the kingdom of the beloved Son. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, read it for you, speaks about this. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. What a perfect description of me before Jesus Christ. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We were under the domain of darkness, but we have been washed, sanctified, and justified. Washed clean, sanctified, set apart under the purposes of God, justified, declared innocent and righteous in his eyes. And it's just because of the kindness of the Father. It's just his kindness. It's just his mercy not giving us what we deserve, but giving us infinitely more than we deserve. When it says the domain of darkness there, the translation may say power. Literally, it's authority. In the Greek, it's exousia. Exousia. And it carries the idea of permission, authority, right, liberty, and power to do something. Listen to me. This, listen very carefully. We have been delivered from the domain, from the authority from the permission, the right, and the liberty of Satan. You see, before you're saved, you're a child of wrath. Satan has in this world permission, authority, right, and liberty, and power until the coming of the Lord. But when the address change takes place, we are delivered from underneath his authority and placed under the authority of Jesus Christ. And next week, we'll be looking at one of the richest passages in the whole Bible, speaking of the preeminence of Jesus Christ, and that he is above every ruler and dominion and authority, above every demonic principality, that he created all things, that he is preeminent, that he is supreme, that he is God. We'll look at that next week. But the domain of darkness having to do with fear and slavery, we have been delivered from that authority, from that right, from that liberty. And so for the Christian, listen to me very carefully. The devil no longer has permission, right, authority, and power, and liberty over your life. It's past tense, amen. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness. He no longer has right, liberty, power, authority, and freedom in your life. In fact, it says in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 15, that he has been disarmed. It says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, speaking of Christ, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, Christ Jesus disarmed the demonic rulers and principalities and authorities, triumphed over them, made a public display of them, means to stand on the back of their neck and rub their face into the ground before their enemies. That's the work of the cross upon the head of Satan. We have been delivered. It's very important theologically that we see how or by what means Satan was disarmed. Again, Colossians chapter 2, the previous two verses, 13 and 14. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
He made you alive together with Him. God made you alive together with Christ. Having forgiven all of our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. How is the enemy disarmed? He is disarmed because the certificate of decrees against us has been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. He is disarmed because the only thing he held over you was sin and the penalty of sin, but that has been nailed to the cross and removed. We are forgiven. And so it says in our text for today, back in chapter 1, verse 14, that in Christ Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. To be redeemed means to be bought out of slavery. To be ransomed with a price. We have redemption. We have been emancipated. We have been bought with a price and because of that, we are forgiven. Now, theologically speaking, that is how Satan is disarmed and that is how we are delivered from his kingdom. It's through forgiveness. And when it means, or when it says, excuse me, that we were redeemed, it does not mean that Jesus paid a price to Satan. That's not what it means. He did not redeem us from Satan. He redeemed us from sin and the penalty of sin. And so now being free from the power of sin, we are no longer under the power of Satan. Having been bought from sin and the power of sin, We are free from the domain of slavery and darkness. That word forgiveness there means in the very basic sense to send away. And so it says in Psalm 103 verse 12 that God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Our sins have been sent away in one direction and we've been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son in the other. Satan has no authority over you. Free from the power of Satan. No permission, no authority, no right. And that is why James chapter 4 verse 7 is so effective. Satan has no permission, no authority, no power, no right. That is why James chapter 4 verse 7 is so effective. James chapter 4 verse 7 says this, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When he comes with temptation, when he comes with accusation, when he comes with slander, when he comes with condemnation, when he comes with discouragement, when he comes with fear, when he comes with trying to overwhelm you about this life and eternity. For the Christian and the Christian only, the promise is resist him and he will flee from you because he has no legal authority over you. And because you have been sealed with the spirit of promise. And so he will try for a while to seduce you, but if you resist him, he sees the seal of ownership, the spirit of God in you, and he must flee. That is the promise of God for the Christian. Amen. Now the opposite of that, resist the devil and he'll flee from you, is entertain the devil and he will cling to you. Resist him and he'll flee from you. Entertain the devil and his temptations and he will cling to you. You see, he's got no legal right, does he? He's got no authority. He has no legal ground. And so at best, he's a squatter. At best, he's a squatter. Meaning, he can only take whatever ground you give him, Christian. 
Satan can only take whatever ground or place or authority in your life that you yield to him. You're still a moral free agent. It is a responsibility of the Christian to walk in obedience and abide in Christ. If you choose not to, if you surrender an area of your life to Satan, he'll take it. He's a squatter. He'll take whatever it is you give him. Let's see this illustrated from Scripture in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Go there. Romans 6. Now, Romans 6 is going to be talking about sin and how the power of sin is broken over us and how we're free from sin. And we'll draw a parallel there about how the enemy would like to work in your life. Romans chapter 6, starting verse 5. For if we have become united with him, that is Christ Jesus, identified with him, there is that relationship. If we have become united with him in likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that the old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, or literally made powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Okay, we have been set free from the power of sin, and that old sinful nature that used to control you has been rendered powerless. Because of relationship, we are identified with Christ and his work upon the cross. Now look at verse 11. Even so, or in the same way, because of that, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. You have got to practically lay hold of what is already true positionally. Consider or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, please listen to this. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. You have a responsibility You have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to fill this responsibility, by the way, but you have a responsibility not to let sin reign in your mortal body. The power of it is broken, but you've got to reckon yourself or believe yourself or practically lay hold of what is positionally true and not let sin reign in your mortal body. Wait, the Bible just said you're dead to sin. I know. Sin is just like Satan. It's a squatter. If you give sin opportunity in your life, it'll take it. God said to Cain in Genesis 4, 7, Cain's sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. It's desiring you. You give it place in your life and it'll take it. Continuing on, verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. Don't show up in order to sin. Didn't we used to do that in the world? Oh, we'd show up looking as good as we could. We get all dressed up and put smelly things on us and do our hair and then we go out at night on State Street and we would present ourselves to sin. It says there, don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. Wow, some Christians really need to lay hold of that. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know 
that, listen, very important, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. We are dead to sin. It no longer has power over us, and so we're to simply not let it rule. We don't give it opportunity. We don't give it place. We don't present ourselves to it. And so it is with Satan. His power over the Christian is broken. It's snapped. We have been delivered from his domain, from his authority. And so the job of the Christian is then don't let him have authority in your life. Don't present yourself to him. We just read in that verse that if you present yourself to one to obey, then you are a slave to that one. Do not present yourself to the work of the enemy. He's a defeated foe. No power, no right, no authority. Do not let him reign. He's only got as much ground in your life as you give him. And if you present yourself to him, you allow him power over you. You allow him entry into your life. But if you're obedient and you abide in Christ and you walk in obedience, then it's not a problem. Look at the next two verses. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became, through obedience, you became slaves of righteousness. And so there's a choice for the Christian. It should be an easy choice because we've been delivered and transferred. His power is broken. But we have to choose to walk in obedience and become slaves of righteousness. But very humbly, very sincerely, too often I see Christians present themselves to the enemy. How? A couple things come to mind. Involvement in the occult and witchcraft. Now, no Christian would say, hey, yeah, the occult and witchcraft, pretty cool, I'm going to dabble in it. But don't be so arrogant. Remember Israel and how often Israel fell into demonically inspired false religions. You see, Satan does not present himself and say, I'm wickedness, I'm darkness, I want to murder you. Come here, little Christian. He doesn't do that. The Bible says he disguises himself as an angel of light. And the untrained Christian that doesn't read their Bible so easily falls into things of the occult and witchcraft. And the Bible says we're not to have anything to do with the appearance of it. We're to flee from the very appearance of it. Things like um, horoscopes. These things are occultic in nature. New age ideas. Certain entertainment that simply glorifies darkness. The Christian is to have nothing to do with it. And when we involve ourselves in such things, we present ourselves to the enemy. We give him ground in our lives. Another way that we often do that, drugs and drinking. It seems, I don't know, clichéic, but it's not. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be self-controlled. Be on the alert. Your enemy, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. Be sober. 
of spirit is inserted in the New American Standard. Be sober. Be self-controlled. Be alert. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In the Bible, drugs are spoken of as pharmakia and it's equated with witchcraft. It's just a biblical fact that such things open you up, present you to the domain of darkness once again, to the work of the enemy. And so when we involve ourselves in anything other than sobriety, we open ourselves to the work of the enemy, we present ourselves, and therefore we become a slave once again. That's why it says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, that's dissipation, or literally a waste. Rather, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the antithesis, the opposite of drunkenness. Darkness and light wait out there. Another way is through sexual immorality and pornography. That is the realm of Satan. Christian, if you are involved in these things, then you have very effectively presented yourself before the enemy and said, here I am. Take ground in my life. Take ground in my mind. Take some authority because I'm giving it to you over my eyes and my marriage and my physical body and my future. Sexual immorality and pornography. You've already been delivered from it. Why are you going back to it? You've already been delivered from Egypt. Why are you heading back in that direction? And the last way, and the way that I believe is most insidious, and these are not all the ways, just some thoughts that came to my mind. The last way and the way that is most sneaky, I believe, is anger and bitterness. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. I believe that one of the most effective inroads for the devil into your life is harboring anger and bitterness. For context's sake, we'll start reading in verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17. Paul writes and says, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, Christian, did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth with one another, uh, with one another, each of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's okay to be angry at times. Anger is not necessarily a sin. God is angry in the Bible sometimes. A good litmus test for anger is, am I angry because it's costing me or because it's costing the glory in the kingdom of God? If 
it's costing you, it might be sinful anger. Maybe. If it's about the glory and the kingdom of God, it might be righteous anger. Nonetheless, anger is not always sin. It's what you do with it. Be angry and yet do not sin. And then here's the most sinful thing you could do with anger. Let the sun go down on your anger. Meaning, very simply, harbor bitterness in your heart. It says in the final verse that we read that that gives an opportunity to the devil. Now, I understand that we have all been cheated. We have all been ripped off. There's reason for all of us in our flesh and in our selfishness to be angry. Some of us from our dads, some of us from our moms, some of us from an adult when we were a kid, some of us from our spouse right now, some of us from coworkers, some of us from ex-husbands, whatever it might be. We all have the opportunity to harbor bitterness, but the command of the God is do not let the sun go down on your anger because if you do, you give an opportunity to the devil. That word opportunity in the Greek is tapas. And it literally means a place. It literally means a geographical location, a spot, a space, a room. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you harbor bitterness in your heart, you give Satan a room in your life. You give Satan place in your life. You open yourself up to the work of the enemy. Making room in your life for the devil, giving him an opportunity to influence you. Now, it's insidious, isn't it? Meaning deceptive, sneaky. Because even the Christian in his flesh thinks, well, I have rights. No, the whole of Christianity is surrendering our rights. But I've been wronged. Well, wasn't he beaten and spit upon and mocked and hung upon the cross? But I'm mad. But doesn't Jesus empower us to forgive even as we have been forgiven? But I want revenge. But isn't vengeance the Lord's? And so it is a height of disobedience when we harbor bitterness and anger in our heart. And it literally in the Bible says that it opens a place in your life to Satan. It opens a room to him. It gives him opportunity to mess with your well-being. But you were already delivered from the domain of darkness. Yes, but you walked right back into that sneaky little kingdom and said, here you go, I'm mad. And Satan's a squatter. He'll take every opportunity and every inch of ground you give him. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, speaking of forgiveness, urged the church in Corinth and said that we ought to forgive in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. If you refuse to forgive in your heart, then the Bible says explicitly that Satan will take advantage of you. And that is part of his scheme. But we as Christians are not to be ignorant of his schemes. heavy man what are the remedies for these things simply obey the Lord simply obey the Lord abide in Christ be quick to repent walk in obedience walk in the power of the spirit you've already been delivered he has no authority over you walk in the light of the kingdom of God obey and then there's no opportunity for the enemy in your life we have been delivered we have been redeemed We have been forgiven. But sometimes, and we end right here, sometimes a Christian has given Satan so much opportunity in his life that he needs some help to get out of it. 
And that's where prayer comes in. And today the prayer team will be up here. And perhaps through some of those things that we've spoken of or some other way, you've given Satan opportunity in your life and in your heart maybe for years. Today is the day to step into freedom. You've already been freed. You've already been delivered. You just got to walk in it. Sometimes we need a little bit of help, and that's why we pray for one another. The prayer team will be up here today. Maybe you're not a Christian, and you just heard today that the Bible says you're dead in your sins and transgressions unable to connect with God, spiritually dead, and that the only thing that you deserve from him is his wrath. And just let me tell you, because I care about you, it's not a good thing. But Jesus offers you redemption and forgiveness. All you have to do, and you can do it at any time, is say, okay, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. Jesus, I understand you died for me. Forgive me. At the moment you do that, you will have a change in address. You'll be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son where there is light and peace and love and joy and truth and promise and eternal life in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for such amazing things. We need your help now to walk in these truths. Lord, reveal to us where we've given ground to the enemy and teach us to take it back today. Perhaps as a congregation, Lord, reveal to us where we've given ground to the enemy and help us to take it back today. And certainly as individuals, show us, Lord, where we've made a place for him, where we're being deceived and ripped off from all the glory that we have in you. And then, Lord, free us afresh today. Be it through a simple word of repentance from us or someone praying for us in a green that we are free in you. Lord, help us to walk in freedom today. Lord, we understand that marriages, families, a church, a community, and a nation rest upon these promises that we are delivered from the authority of the evil one. Teach us to walk, Lord. Teach us to walk.